This is the second part of our chat with the inspiring Jo Lynham. In this episode, I talk with Jo about her struggles to adopt children from Sri Lanka and to raise a daughter with a disability, but also how to break down the barriers to inclusion. There's a, a funny little story I'll share with you, and I, I often think about it. When I was a little girl going to St Joseph's in Mount Isa, every year we used to have this man called the Holy Man. We, that's what we called him. I don't know, he could have been the world's biggest sinner. I don't know. But we called him the Holy Man because he had a caravan and he travelled all around Western Queensland selling holy goods. So, you know, pictures and rosary beads and scapulars, things like that. And so you'd dutifully take your pocket money along and spend it. And I remember I would have been about nine and I walked into the caravan and I saw only one thing, a picture of a little black baby being watched over by a black angel. And I bought it. It took all my pocket money and I bought it, bought nothing else, just that. And I took it home and mum said, what'd you buy from the holy man? And I showed her and she said, what'd you buy that for? That's a waste of money. Yeah. And I didn't care. I put it on my dressing table. And then, of course, I went away and studied music and I forgot about the picture until we were in the final days of waiting to go and get Roshan. And I was sitting in what was going to be his room. I was sitting in the rocking chair. And suddenly I saw myself as this little girl of nine walk into the caravan and see the picture. And it was like, oh my goodness, you were always pulling me. You were always calling to me, you know. We wanted a child to, to love, to make part of our home, our family. But um, for us, that wasn't quite so straightforward. It just wasn't happening. And what we discovered after some testing was that uh, there was a problem for both of us. And what we were told, it's unlikely that you will have children. And so... And the positively stubborn woman in you yeah. went... <laughs> Oh, yes, I will. <laughs> you know, watch me. <laughs> yeah, so for me, you know, I kind of thought, well, okay, that's one way to have a family, but that's not the only way. So, you know, I talked to Greg about, you know, what are your thoughts about us adopting? And then it was like, what are your thoughts if we adopt a child from somewhere else other than Australia? And, and so we did. Yeah. It, there's a lot involved. Australia's not an easy country to adopt from. No, and your journey to that was long. Yes. Hard. Yes. Um, and and lots of with lessons bureaucrats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and, and 80, how long was the journey from beginning to the time that you held your first child in your arms? By the time for Roshi, it took three years from the first application to us actually sitting in the orphanage and eagerly unwrapping him to see what he looked like, you know. Um, yeah, that took three years. It's a bit longer with luxury because um, there were a lot of other issues at the time. Yeah. You know, it was a country that was in the middle of a civil war and by the time we were getting to adopt luxury, that war had ramped up. So we arrived in the country second time when there were curfews from six to six. Now that made life difficult, but um, yeah. Um, was it your second trip over um, when you got your second child, Luxury, yeah. that there was another little child in the orphanage? Yes, just um, a little boy. 
Um, it still haunts me, that little boy. He arrived in the orphanage in a similar way to the way Luxury, our son did, in a coma. Luxury, of course, had the tenacity and the resilience and hung on. This little boy had come in overnight and I was down in the section where all the babies are and um, I saw this little boy and I don't know, my heart just, it just broke to see him look like that. I was so pleased that I never saw Luxury look like that. By the time we got him, he was quite well. I never saw him look that grim. But this little boy did, he was literally saggy skin covering bones. He, he wasn't conscious and he was just taking the odd kind of breath. And so I picked him up. I just couldn't walk away. I couldn't save him. I couldn't make him take the milk and make his body accept it. But I could do one thing, and that was hold him. He couldn't understand me, but he would have understood the intent, the feeling behind my words. And so I just sang to him and talked to him and just wished him on his way, really. It was a haunting experience, still is, to see a little child like that. Helpless. Mm. Mm. And then at that time, there were problems with this end. We were initially allocated um, a little girl who it was found she had TB and Australia would not give her immigration approval to come. She could not get a visa. And then we were allocated a little boy who was found to have an intellectual impairment and the Queensland government would not accept that child. Um, so yeah, then we were finally allocated luxury. So yes, it was a bit of a road to get there. Um, many fights, many battles, but um, I always knew we would get there. Even when we, we faced a real challenge in just getting our paperwork completed here in Queensland. That was a monumental struggle, which ultimately the only way I could get the paperwork even started was for it to go to the minister and the minister issued a ministerial. It then goes to foreign affairs and from foreign affairs to the Sri Lankan High Commission. Great, they send it away, we get notification. It's gone to Colombo, excellent, wonderful. A month later, there's a baby buying scandal uncovered in Sri Lanka and you can't get your paperwork back and you can't go forward, you can't do anything. You're stuck. But I always knew, I always knew we would get a child. I always knew we would. There's a part of me that sort of sees that for all of us, we have a contract in our lives before we come here. We have a contract with our significant others and our children. We've agreed to be their partners. We've agreed to be their mums or their dads. So I kind of see that I had an agreement with those boys doesn't matter where you are, I'm going to come find you. I will find you. I will bring you to me. I will. And so I did, no matter what it took. Um, you were determined to be a mum. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was very challenging. Uh, Luxury wasn't a baby, but at two and a half or thereabouts, we don't know. There was no birth records, so we don't know. Somewhere around that, he had language. He was speaking singular. So I could speak a little, but not a lot. And I knew he needed to speak English. And he, he, my heart ached for him. Things that you just don't think, all you can see when you're trying to adopt is, is what's in front of you. Get the baby, get the baby, get the baby, get the baby. That's all you're focused on. 
But when you come back with this little boy who's, who's not a baby, he's two and a half perhaps, we don't know, um, and he's got so many issues, he's terrified of everything. You can't get him into a car seat. He's terrified no one can come to your home mm. because he thinks he's going to be taken away again. So people were keen. We lived in a little tiny community. Everyone knew we'd gone to Sri Lanka to get our child. Everyone wanted to know and meet him. No one could meet him for ages because he was terrified. But eventually he, um, eventually he settled. Eventually he, he started to learn some English. It took a while. But once he got some language and he went to kindy, best thing for him. You lived in a little small town. Tell me the day that you took the boys to the pool. Yeah, there's a lot of good things about small communities, but there are things about it that can be challenging. And you have to remember, this was back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. and back then things were very clicky in small towns yes, and, and still are some. And, yeah, it was and very the clicky. supports and the education and yeah. the inclusivity that we have today is not It was not, not there. there. There were lots of pushback. And certainly um, luck hadn't been with us very long. And um, it was a warm day, so... I, well, let's go to the pool. That won't be too difficult. It'll be just you and your brother and I. Let's see how this goes and we'll cool down. And um, there was us at one end of the pool and there were a few other families. And then the owner came and said, Oh, Joe, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to ask you and the boys to get out of the pool. And uh, she said, Oh, there's been a complaint. People are concerned your sons in the pool could spread infection. What, what was and that what, like for you in that moment? In that moment, yeah, I felt a mix of um, desperation and sheer anger at, at the futility of that, at that absolute small-mindedness, you know. But I also knew that, that um, I, yeah, I, I wasn't going to make a scene and embarrass the boys. Because in that moment you could totally make a scene. Of course, absolutely. But I didn't. I went home and I... I was upset. I got the boys watching TV and I cried. I was devastated. But I did learn a little while after that. I had a real insight that the way forward here is not to run, but to run towards and to get involved and show this community the value of each of us, that each of us brings something unique. We've all come from somewhere. And it was just lucky for me that we had a, a big fundraiser for preschool. We wanted to build a big pergola, which is going to take considerable bucks. So I presented this idea, why don't we have an international food fair? To which, of course, people initially thought, what are you mad? There's only you in town. You know, I said, well, actually, that's not true. There's Cambodian family here as well. And so then I spoke to the teacher and said, or the preschool teacher and said, how about through the preschool, you talk and ask families about where did we come from? What is our background? Yeah. And what we discovered from that, of course, there was wonderful heritage of people from all sorts of places, Maltese, Italian, German, all kinds. And so those families welcomed the opportunity to share. And to me, the other thing that was going to work was food. Yeah, Absolutely. If you can come together and enjoy people's food and their music, what's not to like? It's pretty hard to hate someone who kind of chomping down on their food going Jesus is great but hate you that's almost impossible you know so I knew that bringing people together to share it would be a, a great thing and so I kind of that was my mission then was to have open house every Saturday night anyone can come and have curry 
and talk. So sometimes we had a house full, sometimes we didn't. You know, and for me that was the way forward, was to show community as not an alien thing, but it's who we are, it's the fabric of all of us. So you're a mum to two boys. Yes, two beautiful boys. You were told boys. you could not conceive children naturally. Yeah. And then Emma. Yeah. Interestingly, before I went to India, I had this really disturbing dream. It was a weird kind of dream because I was in the back seat of a car and in the front seat was one of the other devotees that I knew. He was driving and I had this really overwhelming, fearful, oh my God, he doesn't know. The road is going to go backwards on itself like a really sharp U-turn. Does he know? Does he know? But he negotiated that. The car went back in the same direction that it had been going. And then there was this huge hill and I remember in the dream, you know when you, you, you go in a car really fast down a dip or a hill and your stomach kind of catches up a few minutes later. It was like that in the dream. And I woke up kind of, ah, ah, what? You know, what does it mean? What is it about? I kept thinking about it all day and I woke up the next day with the dream still. Then of course got busy planning, packing, heading off to the ashram. As the plane touched down on Indian soil, literally as it touched, whack, right there again was the dream. And that real uncomfortable feeling. Again, it was like, oh, what? I know this dream is telling me something about the future. I know it. Yeah, so it was only after we came back from, I came back from the ashram where I'd felt nauseous and unwell, but put that down to a change of food and water and stuff like that. But when I go back, I still felt that way. And my mother said, oh, you've probably got giardia. <laughs> Great, thanks, Mum. So I went to the doctor and she asked a simple question, could you be pregnant? Don't be silly, I've been married for 14 years. And so she did the test there and then. And it was only a little while after that where I realised, oh my goodness, it was again sitting quietly. I wasn't actually meditating. I had real clear insight, oh my goodness, the dream is about my life is going to go back the way it was. Because I had thought, I'm coming back from India, I'm going to take on a job. And I realised my life is going to go back the way it was to being a mum with babies and do all of that stuff again. I was, however, unsure of what were all the hills. The, and, you know, climbing up and then the road disappearing, you can't see anything. And your stomach dropping. What are those things about? Mm. Yeah, didn't take me long to find out what those things were about. <laughs> no, because Emma was born with Down syndrome. Yes, yes, but I knew that before. Yeah. Not because of medical no. um, Again, scannings and everything, but it was because of... Meditation. I sat one morning because I had a really strong sense I'm carrying a little girl. You know, I think most of us, when you're, when you're pregnant as a mum, I think you know a lot more than you know that you know. But I had a real knowing, this is a little girl. I just felt it strongly. And um, so I sat down to meditate and I was simply asking the question, is this a little girl? I think it is. And then... I saw a vision of myself give birth so clearly. Couldn't see who was helping me, but they lifted the little baby up right in front of me. I could see the little face. I saw that the baby had Down syndrome. And it wasn't the vision that made me know I was having a baby. It was the feeling I felt. Like considering only not that long before, I've been sitting at the feet of, an, of a guru and did not feel peaceful. And here I am sitting in my little meditation room, feeling absolutely loved and loving for everyone and everything. 
and feeling as if the whole universe just went, oh, held its breath. And I knew because of the stillness, I'm carrying a baby with Down syndrome. It's a little girl. And I got up for meditation and just literally floated through the day with this incredible sense of peace. This is the child I'm supposed to have. Her and I have an agreement. I'll be your mum, you'll be my daughter. You went through so many hurdles and challenges with the boys facing inclusivity. And then all of a sudden you're facing another inclusive challenge, mm. but on a different scale. On a different level, different, yeah. Mm. Um, Emma was in kindergarten and it was time to start preparing her for school. Mm. It was very difficult, yeah. Um, that was a time when the community was not particularly inclusive about people with disability. Um, there was a very clear, like a boundary. This side is for people with disability. That's, that's your box. And I, I don't know where and how I knew, but I felt so strongly. And actually in recovery the day I had Emma, a nurse was asking me, was I okay? And I said, yes. And she said, are you sure? He said, you seem remarkably calm to have just heard you're having a baby with Down syndrome. You had a child with Down syndrome. And I said, this little girl is not going to be hidden away. You're going to know about her. It was very heartbreaking as a mother to have her openly rejected by families and openly rejected by a schooling system. That was heartbreaking. That they could not see the benefit to not just her, but to the other children. Mm. To my way of seeing it, that if you have, you know, a little boy that, that had sat beside Emma in year one, he learns lessons that no teacher, no matter how good they are, can teach. How do you teach tolerance? How do you teach patience? You can talk the life out of patience, but you only learn about patience by being patient. There's, you know, about being um, tolerant, patient, kind. All of those things come through experience. Now imagine that child that sits there with her and sees the struggles to do the simplest things that you can do so easily. But for her, every single little thing is a hell of a struggle. What does that child learn and all the children around her? And the strangest thing about it was for the six months she had in school, it was so clear the other children wanted to learn to sign. They were turning themselves inside out. They were actually signing the alphabet before they could say it. So, I mean, for me, I reached a point of thinking, well, yep, yeah, okay, my child isn't here. That's actually not so bad. I thought of all the things she never heard, all of the harsh comments, all the cruel words. She never had to hear them. That's a blessing. You know, there's a lovely balance of scales, I think, in the universe, where it looks like on the one hand, this person has missed out. But over here, look at what they got. Yeah. So I look at my daughter, you know, with Down syndrome, and, hearing loss and cleft palates and autism. But I also see her incredible ability to read people with precision accuracy. She's way better than me. I can be fooled by people's intellects and charm, not her. I've seen her pick people in a heartbeat and just dismiss them like, and refuse to have anything to do with them. And at the time I've been mortified and thought, Oh my God, my child is so rude. I need to talk to her about that. I need to take her into hand. Yep. That's not okay. Down the line, what do I discover? She was right. Yep. That's a great gift. Yeah. In your book, you talk about the journey of getting her into the school that she started in and yeah. how hard that was and how much was. rejection was there and how much you had to fight to get mm. that. 
And then eventually after everything, she was accepted into that school and there was a massive journey for you to go through that. And But the day that you walked in and she was sitting in, and, and the teacher who agreed to take her because no one else would was the words, yeah. you're lucky that I, I'm taking her because yeah, no, no one else wants her. no one else wants her. In that moment as a mother myself, mm. I would have found it hard again I did. to not I really rage. I struggled <laughs> to not. I struggled to not yell and scream and I struggled to not cry. But the bigger part of me knew, again... I had to take her on another journey. I have to help this person look differently. Look at her differently. Look at your role with her differently. See her not as extra work, but as a plus. Because coming with her is an extra set of hands. Mm. She came with her own aid. Yeah. So there's another set of hands in the classroom. Yeah, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, plus I was coming to the classroom to help whenever needed as well. And then I discovered talking to the advisory teacher who was provided by the government to come in to work with the teacher. But this advisory teacher told me that she was not allowed in the classroom, that she was forced to take Emma to the covered area. Oh, my goodness. And sit outside when the rest were in the air-conditioned classroom. That was, to me... Um, a great lesson in how my child was not valued. She was not seen as an asset. She was seen as a liability in the classroom. And the day that I arrived that Friday, I made the decision right there. I knew this is toxic. We have to get out of here. And I did. So we made arrangements for her to go to another school. So, um, But it didn't really matter where you were at that time. The education department was talking about inclusion, but we were still talking about separate units in schools or clusters and things like that. So it was challenging to have real inclusion and have um, a system see your child as a valuable contribution to any classroom. There's still struggles. It's come a long way. It has a long, long way. And I think without people like you who have challenged it, we wouldn't be where we are today. I think we're always going to have work to do. There's always going to be, In yeah. that space. But In the community space, there always will be. But I think while we keep um, an open mind and a willing heart and we keep um, working towards the goal of more inclusion, of what does that mean? What does that look like? That means inclusion for everyone. That's, just, that's not just saying, oh, well, for Jo Lynham, inclusion means you must include her daughter. That's me, Jo Lynham, saying we need to include everybody. We need to have a place that respects and values our Aboriginal people, a place that values, respects newcomers to the country. What are the gifts they've brought? Australia has benefited and grown because of, of migrants. We'd be nowhere without them. Mm. You know. So we've got a different batch, if you like, of migrants. But again, if you just sit tight, we'll see the gifts, the challenges, the things that they bring. Emma made it through school. Yeah. You all made it through school. Yeah, we did. And then now it's, she's old enough to get a job. Yeah, yeah. But workplaces don't like employing people with disabilities. Well, certainly it's a bit we, challenging. It is challenging. Um, and so going to um, an employment, a disability employment provider, I was originally told, Mrs. Lyman, there's nothing we can do for your daughter. You just need to, it's like the school told you, she's not going to be able to work. Eek. You know, she's not going to be able to get a job. And for me, you know, like in some ways, ways, you know, telling me you can't, (laughs) it's like, 
my head translates it and goes, what, what? You want to watch me do it? All yeah. righty. And that's kind of what happens. It's like, eat my shorts, watch me. Yeah. Um, and your husband goes, oh, God, Joe, yes, love, what? here we go again. Yeah, he did. We had a lot of discussions and he kept saying like, well, you know, Joe, I'm not sure that you're being realistic. How is it going to work? And I had to honestly say, I don't know how it's going to work, but I know it is. And it was... Um, because that's what we want for our kids we as do. a parent. We want our kids to grow up and contribute to society exactly. like every other to be happy. person. Yep. Yeah, to contribute, to belong, to feel that they yeah. matter. I'll be missed if I'm not here. Yeah. Everyone wants to know that, that if you fell off your perch at work tomorrow, everyone around you will miss your contribution. You know, and I knew from just hours of her birth when I, out of my mouth, said, she's not going to be hidden away. You're going to know about her. That part of me then, that greater part of me that taps into whether you call it your soul or consciousness or whatever, knew. Instinct. Something, yeah, whatever word we want to use, knew there's, there's a role for Emma, there's a purpose. She is in my life. Yes, we agreed, but there's a greater purpose here. I was aware that I needed to do something. She'd finished school. She'd been out of school for two years. Um... And she was floundering. She was actually kind of spiralling down. So my plans for her to learn to cook, to shop, to do things like that. It was like, you know, you're trying to pull teeth out of a, a woolly mammoth to try and get her to do that. Typical teenager almost. Well, though. that too. Um, she couldn't see a purpose in any of it. And at the same time, I was researching and looking for ideas. And I read and looked on Crew Community Resource Unit in Brisbane. I looked on their website a few times and I kept going back to that and reading it. And then they had a workshop coming to Townsville and it was a life-changing experience. It challenged me on every level. And what I loved about it, I wasn't being bombarded by experts. The guest speakers were people with disability and their families. It was the first time I had seen that and I had this moment in myself of realising that I had not seen that in Emma. So I had to address that and own that. And I vowed, an absolute vow, I'm going to move Emma's life forward. I didn't know how, I had no idea. And I drove home and, um, yeah, cooked tea, did the usual things, and the next morning I meditated and was asking that question. And I saw her shredding and thought, oh, come on, concentrate. And when she had been at high school, she had done, as some of the seniors had done, office stuff. So some of them would put newsletters in envelopes, some would put the stamps on and some would shred. Well, she didn't like anything except the shredding. And so when I saw this, I, I thought I was being distracted. So I made myself start meditation again, but I saw it again. And then it was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. I could see it all, all clear as day. And then it was get out of meditation like... Okay, so what's not so clear is how do I actually make that happen? <laughs> Wasn't quite so clear. So that was... Um, so, so what did yeah. you do then? Who did you use? Well, initially um, she started to shred. We bought a relatively small shredder and she shredded it home in the downstairs room. And then I proposed to her, we need to move out into the world bigger. And, and I um, approached a legal firm and uh, they were open, gave her a shot. But... Um, Initially, she was very clingy to me. And after about six weeks or so, I thought, I've got to get myself out of this or she's never going to let go. So I said to her one day, I've just got to go to the loo. And I knew that there were backstairs. 
So I went to the loo, but I went down the back stairs and did a blocky. And I came back and she was like, oh, mummy, you were gone for so long. Okay, you were okay. And so I continued to do that and just went longer. And what I noticed was after a few weeks, she stopped looking for me. She barely noticed. So I would say, oh, yeah, you're right, you get going. Yeah, I'll go and get a drink. You want a drink? I'll get you a drink. And I'd be gone for like however long I looked and thought, that'll take about an hour. From my perspective, having Emma out in such an open way in the light is really important because that helps to keep her safe. Because without any one of those businesses or anyone or myself having a discussion with them about keeping Emma safe, that's never been a discussion, ever. And yet I would sometimes get a phone call from people to say, oh, did you know that that person working with Emma today, you know, and I listen to those things and think, wow, that's amazing. That is amazing that they don't realise what they're doing, but they're looking out for her. Mm. So having her right out in the open, in the light, keeps her safe. So work has been as powerful for Emma. Work is powerful for all young people. Mm -hmm. If I think back to when... Rashan and Luxury began work, they were no different. Yeah. <clears throat> they began um, anxious, unsure of themselves, not confident. And I look at them now with huge networks of people, confident, one owning his own business, the other managing a business. Mm. So that is the process for all young people. As they get beyond the family gate, they discover, who am I? I'm not just a son or a daughter or a sister or a brother. Who am I without that? Yeah. And that's powerful for young people to get into the workplace and meet people, grow their skills, their social networks, their connections. That's powerful. And I wanted the same for Emma. And that's exactly what's happened. Work has allowed her life to literally soar. So Emma's business is Master Shredder. Yeah. The really amazing thing about it is, and certainly I mentioned, as all authors do, have a section of your book where you say thanks. And what was really important to me in the back of the book is to say thank you, obviously, to my ever so long-suffering patient husband and my sons and Emma, but also to acknowledge publicly the part that the Townsville business community has played. Because without them, Emma's nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, They're the real hero. Well, her business is nothing. Yeah. Without them, honestly, she, we, we, we'd still be scratching and trying to find that valued role for Emma. But it was those businesses, that very first business, that gave Emma an opportunity and then opened the door with another legal firm. Mm. And then they opened the door. That has been amazing to me to see... Um, Businesses that they don't have to do this, but they've given her an opportunity. They've extended a welcome to her and stuck with her all these years. But um, <clears throat> you mentioned listening earlier. through your story, right, from your beginning of, you know, of moving away and then to your rape and children, you know, getting your boys and then Emma. It's the shitty parts of your life that you seemed mm. to have learnt the most mm. from. But if you think about it, I, I don't so much garden now, but I used to love to garden. And so for me, there's a really good analogy for that. And one is that if you want to go really nice, good, juicy tomatoes, you need some crap to grow them in. Mm. If you want to grow a beautiful lotus, it doesn't grow out of clear water. 
they might look at but when you get down that that lotus that beautiful flower is growing out of all the dirt and the filth and the shit at the bottom and that is what beautiful things grow out of depending on how you've chosen to look at it so if you choose to look at it and see it as a defining moment that will forever define you then so it shall be but for me that moment was not going to define me as <clears throat> with Emma Emma's business card and the signage on her gas is this business is powered by possibility not defined by disability and to me that's everything don't be defined by by something something that happened um, the color of your skin both of my boys don't see themselves as the color of the skin that's not who they are it's one aspect of them but it's not the only aspect of them just as Emma has disabilities that isn't her as a part of her but not the whole story you know that and I think that's important so to raise any child is a tough gig to raise a child with a disability is an even tougher gig mm. so you need support and allies just for different reasons um, we, we found out about a thing called microboards Australia so we moved towards a microboard set up that and that's actually an incorporated organization that sits around Emma and the board has only got one job Emma ensuring that Emma has a good life and what she's got continues and grows. Um, because but that's I'm, setting her up for success past you. Yeah, that's it. That's the idea. It's is allowing you as a mum. Yeah. What will this done look your like job. when I'm gone? And that has been my lens now for quite a while. What would it look like when I'm gone? Who will do this? Who will know this thinking? How do I implant this thinking? How do I ensure it doesn't go off the rails? And that's a gift to be able to look at your own mortality and, and know I will leave her behind. Mm. And when I must say, when she was younger, I lost a lot of sleep wondering who will know this? Who will help her with this? How on earth will she go on without me? Mm. <clears throat> and I reached a point of realising, mm, no, that's selfish to not do anything. You need to make sure she's well, strong. To ask the question and not have a solution. Make, yeah, exactly. And make sure that um, that she's strong, that she knows she's strong, that she knows she can do things without me. You don't need me. You love me. I love you too. But I will leave you behind. That is a fact. And to tell myself otherwise would be delusional. You know, I'm well into my 60s. I will, you know, I'll not outlive this girl. That's, that's not realistic. So the realistic thing is to plan for what it will look like. And that has been, that has ultimately, it might sound strange, but planning and thinking about my death has given me great peace of mind to know, even to, down to the discussions with the board about the need to talk to Emma about that. What does death look like? So, for example, when uh, Greg's mum was dying, I didn't hide that from Emma. I made sure Emma and a support worker went to Brisbane to see her, to have a visit with her before she passed. And I talked to Emma about that and then explained to her that Grandma now can't get out of bed. And eventually Grandma will go to sleep and one night she just will never wake up again. You know, and that would be the way I probably want them to explain. That, that you know, Mum's getting old and she's getting tired and she can't do as much. And that day will come when mummy will not get up. Mummy will be gone. But you'll be fine. 
And that's, to me, is um, to do anything less is unkind. It, to leave her devastated would be unkind. You know, and she to think that she can only love me and I'm the only one that could love her, that that's wrong. So many people love Emma. So many people, in a different way to the way I love her, of course, but they love her. They value her. She will be fine without me. She will go on. Mm. Joe, thank you. Thank you. You're a really special lady, positively stubborn, and I'm glad you are because look what you've accomplished. Thank you. You have a beautiful family, and um, I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to. BRAVE is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.